This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. And by Cape Fear Pharmacy, a local independent pharmacy providing health care and compounding services customized to meet our patients' needs. Visit CapeFearPharmacy.com today and let us take care of you. Resistance, rebellion, revolution. Call it whatever you like, but in cities across the United States, citizens have taken to the streets to say they've had enough. Scribbled on signs and chanted through megaphones are pleas and demands for the protection of black citizens in a country founded on a system that valued their lives by the dollar. Slavery as an institution died with the Confederacy over 150 years ago. But the attitudes and outright hate that fueled its domination were never truly abolished in America. Just look at Wilmington's own history of racial injustice with the 1898 coup d'etat, perhaps the darkest chapter in this region's history and one that we will cover at length on this podcast in the future. You can even look more recently to the three Wilmington police officers fired for making extremely racist comments while on our streets, where they vowed to protect all of us. Since the death of George Floyd while in police custody in Minneapolis on Memorial Day, protesters and activists have worked to incite real change in the policies and the communities of this country, where systematic racism has been embedded since the colonies. It's not an easy conversation, and it's one that flares tensions, stokes fear, and promises to dismantle the status quo, a prospect of change that terrifies some. But if you go back about 260 years All the same could be said about the colonists who decided that they had had enough of a life living under the oppressive British rule. They took to the streets in anger as well. They wrote columns of dissatisfaction with the way things were, and they convened their leaders to change it. Now, they went to war for their cause, something that no one wants to see happen today. And the messages of outrage in 2020 and the 1760s were also different. But the act of using a group's collective voice to bring about change is perhaps the most truly American thread that weaves through our country's history. This week, we mark another July 4th. But this one comes at a time when the Union feels more fractured than any of us likely remember. So we wanted to look back at one of the first times open rebellion took hold in America. And it happened right here in the Cape Fear. The Stamp Act Rebellion came years before the Boston Tea Party and a full decade 
before 56 men signed their names to the Declaration of Independence. For several months in 1765 and 1766, Cape Fear residents in Brunswick Town and Wilmington chose open resistance instead of quiet subjugation. After the Crown levied one tax too many. Their loyalist neighbors called them traitors, and it was only after their eventual victory that history remembered them as heroes. Cape Fear Unearthed is the podcast about persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. And the Stamp Act Rebellion is one of those landmark stories that formed the bedrock of this region and this country. So this Independence Day, let's sit back and settle in for a special Cape Fear Unearthed conversation about how the Stamp Act Rebellion ignited this region's first spark of revolution. Joining me now to talk about one of the earliest acts of rebellion in American history that happened right here in the Cape Fear is someone who is very familiar with uh, Cape Fear on Earth, Jim McKee, who is the site manager of Brunswick Town Fort Anderson State Historic Site here in Winnebo. Jim, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so we're actually at Brunswick Town today. As I've been telling people uh, with the coronavirus, we're kind of taking the podcast on the road and doing our interviews uh, at the places where we're talking about. And so we're here at Brunswick Town. And I wanted to do the story, as I mentioned to you, we're here at July 4th. We're seeing a lot of national rebellion, a lot of national national resistance. And so I wanted to jump back to something that we had mentioned on the show when we did our Brunswick Town episode, but something that we could dig a lot deeper into because it is mm-hmm. such a, a really pivotal moment here in Brunswick Town. And that is the Stamp Act Rebellion. I want to start out, though, with talking about what was the Stamp Act? Because some of us might not have been paying attention in our history classes. <laughs> really? I, I can't believe that. I can't believe that. Well, the Stamp Act is basically the result of the Seven Years' War, or French and Indian War Number 4. The Britain has nearly bankrupted itself fighting this war. And on top of that, it's gained Canada mm-hmm. and quite a bit more territory. So, What year are we talking? We're talking in the 1753 this is a way for Britain to offset some of the costs of that war and for the colonies to be able to pay to defend themselves. But more importantly, this is really the first major all-encompassing tax that the British Empire is going to put on the American colonies. At the time, the American colonists were the least taxed of the entire empire. So now being taxed, they're starting to notice. Correct. And what this tax is going to be on is virtually everything. Any official documents, marriage licenses, law degrees, playing cards, dice. Newspapers? Newspapers. newspapers Yeah. yeah. Everything. Books, you name it. It had Mm -hmm. a tax on it. And the big thing for here was clearance papers on ships. A ship could not enter the port unless it had stamped papers. Well, at the time, Port Brunswick was the main entry point for this whole region. And pretty much for all of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. So 
that's what that's what it all stemmed from. And and this is where we get taxation without representation. And as a result of 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 the buildup leading to the Stamp Act, you have what's called the Stamp Act Congress, where all of the colonies were supposed to send representatives to New York and meet and try to figure out how to combat this this tax. It's mm-hmm. what they call an illegal tax. Only nine colonies sent representatives. North Carolina was not one of them because prior to it occurring, Tryon disbanded the North Carolina legislature. Basically said, all right, we've done everything we're going to do. You're out of session. Wow. So North Carolina didn't send any uh, any delegates to the Congress. So North Carolina would not be um, represented on that Stamp Act flag. Mm-hmm. The Stamp Act flag was kind of, you could say, the first American flag. It was a plain red and white stripe flag. No canton, just nine red and white stripes. And that was the Stamp Act flag. So resistance, or at least displeasure with the Stamp Act, was universal here in the colonies. All of it the was colonies universal, were yeah. not hot. Actually, the first act of public demonstration took place in August of 1765. Hmm. When the Loyal Nine, it was it was nine leaders in Boston, started to basically, and they called themselves the Sons of Liberty, try to do some public demonstrations. They hanged a stamp distributor in effigy, that sort of thing. And then they made the mistake of persuading an organized gang of what they were considered back then local hoodlums to join in the activities. And before it was over with, the stamp distributor's house had been burned. Wow. The lieutenant governor's house had been broken into and looted. Sound familiar? Yeah, there, there's a lot of those similar elements to some of the things we're yeah. seeing today. And it was a pattern that occurred early on, mainly in the, in the cities. But it was not the norm. It was not the norm, especially in North Carolina. As, as much as we like to harp that... The Stamp Act, what happened here in the Cape Fear in 1766 is the first armed resistance against British authority. No violence. Yeah. Per se. Yeah. Per se. It wasn't the trend. That wasn't how they were approaching it. Right. It was not the trend. Yeah. Because at the time, they were the, the, the colonists were still loyal. I mean, the, yes, there was thoughts of breaking from the mother country. Mm-hmm. And we know now because of the archaeology that we've done with what we what was found last year, that little glass jewel that said Wilkes and Liberty mm-hmm. 45. Chances are that little emblem is about the time of the Stamp Act. Well, and that was found in what was, was uncovered as tavern. So Correct. Correct. a place where people would have had these conversations. Exactly. They would have come in and had this. Exactly. So when do we start seeing that first reaction to the Stamp Act? here in the Cape Fear? You really don't start seeing it until October. Okay. Um, just before the just before the um, the stamps arrive. Okay. Um, the first the first public demonstration in Wilmington was on October 19th, 1765. And I want to remind people that just in case they don't know the dates, we're still a decade before the American Revolution. Right. So this is this is early. This is this, this is, is really early. those early brewings of revolution of of those sentiments of of 
parting ways, I guess. Right. And, and that one was simply a gathering. Now, it's a big gathering, about 500 people. Um, they have a bonfire. Uh, they burn an effigy and, and a lot of drinking going on. And this is here? No, this, so this is in Wilmington. In Wilmington, sorry. In Wilmington. Most everything is occurring in Wilmington. Yeah. The, early, the early resistance is almost exclusively in Wilmington. Why was that? It was just far enough away from the governor. Because he's here. The he's governor, here. this is this Tryon is, is station, here yeah. in Brunswick. Brunswick. Yep. So, yeah. And you've got HMS Viper, the warship, mm-hmm. parked, docked, literally right here in the river. So you can do it in his backyard without him, you know, being present right there. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So that's the October 19th. It's the first one. The next one is going to be Halloween night, October 31st, 1765. That's when... They the crowd is is a little bit larger, a little bit rowdier, and this time they have an effigy of liberty that they put into a casket, okay. and they parade her casket, liberty in the casket, through the streets of Wilmington. They 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 bring it to an area where they've dug a grave, they lay the casket beside the grave, and they're getting ready to bury liberty. A minister comes up stops the proceedings, grasps Liberty by the wrist, checks her pulse, and declares Liberty has a pulse. So immediately they yank the effigy out of the casket, strap her to a chair, and parade the chair around the, around the town to each tavern and drinking establishment until they all pretty much wear themselves out, and they go home. There's some real uh, theatricality to that. Uh, right. there's, there's a lot of drama. At this point, I mean, it would just be... Kind of a, a faceless figure, I guess, that just has the word liberty on her, right? I mean, or is it, how is that working? We're not sure, but more likely, yes. It's going to be a faceless figure. It's going to have, she's going to be dressed probably in women's clothing, um, maybe have a crown or some type of helmet on. But yeah, yeah maybe the words liberty. Maybe. But don't know. They're probably screaming liberty at this point. Oh, they're yeah. screaming liberty. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, the next day, November 1st, is when the Stamp Act goes into effect. So they really celebrated that last breath exactly. of that time. Exactly. That was the last breath this, yeah, of freedom. Yeah. In their minds, the last breath of freedom. And so November 1st, the Stamp Act is instituted. No, the problem is no stamps. Stamps haven't arrived from England yet. So everything kind of goes into limbo. Near as we can tell, commerce and all that does not completely stop yet. But it's kind of like when we were in first phase one of COVID where we're in quarantine and there's very little you know, economic activity. You break down to those essentials. Those, exactly. Those. So that's what's happening is, is most of the most of the economics have broken down. The government has broken down. So. Because there's that resistance between accepting the law and the law now being the law of the land. Correct. You know. And the stamp paper's not being there. Yeah. You know, the stamps aren't there. Finally, on November 28th, HMS Diligence arrives in the Cape Fear carrying the stamp papers. And you'll notice Diligence, very, yeah, mu- yeah. very much a recurring name here in the Cape Fear. Yep. And you know, in the meantime, prior to November 28th, Tryon has been trying to hold out an olive branch to the people. You know, a couple of times he in, in, would, would t- try to meet with the, with the leaders in the area. Um, at one point, just about a week before the stamp papers arrived, he invited 40 people, actually more than that, over 100 
to his house here in Brunswick. About 40 accepted, and they dined and you know, discussed matters in a civil tone. But when he did continuously try to bring up the Stamp Act, he was met with nothing but resistance. But it was still cordial. So he made an effort. He made an effort. Right. Well, as a diplomatic leader, you would hope that there would at least be some type of communication between the people protesting that and this. Yeah. Correct. And things just, when, once the stamp papers arrived, they're not allowed to be landed. Yeah, no one would let these things touch land. The residents wouldn't. Right. Yeah. At that point, everything stops in the Cape Fear, Wilmington and Brunswick. And it starts here at Brunswick because of that not being able Correct. to be brought in the port. So what's happening is if you read, if you, there's a couple of accounts of people who have who've left their, their impressions. There is barrels of tar everywhere because it's not shipping out. There, it's just the, sitting here. It's sitting here. There's no economy. There's no shipping in, no shipping out. Everything is ground to a halt at this point. Government, everything. There's There's no... Courts, nothing. How does how does it how do people survive in that way? When when you see all of that ground to a halt, how are people kind of going about their day to day lives? Do we know? We don't. I I, I don't have that information. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking it's probably. I would I would interpret that it's probably the same as what we did when we were in quarantine. People stayed home. People stayed home. They they gathered, but they could still gather and drink. Yeah. We know that. We see it. That's yeah, one thing that we couldn't do. Accounts. So <laughs> That's what we can do is, is drink. Yeah. But as time gets into December, tensions really start to build. This is only adding to that fervor. This is adding. Yeah. Of anger. The, the straw, I'm not going to say it's the straw that broke the camel's back, but it's the straw that made that camel bow was around December 20th when Tryon went to Wilmington to take his oath as governor, as royal governor. Prior to all this, he's just the lieutenant governor, but he's also, by de facto, the governor. It's just not official. December 20th, 1765, is going to be official. So Constantine Phipps brings the diligence up from Fort Johnston to Brunswick, and Phipps and Tryon board the bar, uh, barge, and they're taken up to Wilmington. When Tryon disembarks at the dock, He's met by the mayor, the aldermen, all the freeholders of the town, leading citizens, the militia, and they're lining the streets. And some of the ships that are in the harbor have loaned guns to the to the town of Wilmington, and they discharge 17 cannons in salute to the new governor. Everyone was civil. I mean, okay. they were doing just what just what was expected: a civil salute to the to the new governor. Um, the streets are lined in his honor. Every, flags are flying in his honor. He goes to the courthouse. He takes the oath. He makes his acceptance speech. And then this, and everyone's in great spirits. And then he talks about the Stamp Act. And he tries to, to plead to the people's best, you know, better judgment. Where he, he says... America needs to help her mother country. On those words, the hissing begins. The hissing just, oh, it, it got out of hand. Flags were draped. 
flags at ships out in the harbor started raising all number of flags. And at one point, one of the ships raises an Irish flag. It's, a, it's described as a green flag with the gold harp of Ireland, which under naval law is illegal. Now, in addition, it doesn't help that Constantine Phipps was despised by the people simply because he's the one that was the captain of the ship that brought the stamp papers in. So while everyone is being cordial to Tryon out the other side of their mouth, they're bad-mouthing and hissing Phipps. Don't shoot the messenger is probably exactly. his stance on things. So Phipps orders that flag removed, and he sends men on board that ship. They remove the flag. He brings it ashore, and he takes it to the governor, where the governor's at, and holds it. You know, it's the, the flag, for all intent and purposes, is under arrest. Yeah, confiscated, yeah. Well, the people get irritated and grab the barge that the governor and Phipps had been brought down on, and they, they start dragging it through the streets, and they're planning to burn it as an act of insult. And the Frederick Gregg, who's the governor, I mean, the mayor of Wilmington, says, no, no, no. Why don't we hold the boat ransom and trade it for the flag? I like how the mayor is engaging in this, exactly. this, this rebellious this is behavior. How it works. This is how it works. So they approach Tryon. And Tron says, you know, to, to keep things calm, he agrees. They do a swap. The people still parade the boat around because Phipps has disappeared. No. And come to find out, Phipps has sent word to Brunswick to have diligence brought to Wilmington so that he can bombard Wilmington. So he's taking it a little step farther than Tron. He's, he's taking it a to, step further. To keep yes. things kind of calm. And as it is, there's a reason why the port was in Brunswick and not Wilmington. It is because of the flats halfway between here and Wilmington. The diligence ran aground on the flats. Even though she's a sloop of war, she's still too heavy. So they spend the whole afternoon unloading ballast, trying to either get her over the flats or just get her off so they can get her back. Either way... Dill just doesn't come up to Wilmington to bombard. Probably for the best. Definitely for the best. And the next day, the townspeople apologize to to, gov- to the governor on how how they yeah they treat how he was treated. But one of the one of the big insults in that whole thing was um, there was going to be a feast and everything else in the governor's honor, and the people took they they had basically cooked an ox, and. The governor had cooked the ox and supplied seven barrels of beer. The beer was dumped into the streets. Uh-huh. Um, Wasting good beer. I know. <laughs> the head of the ox, uh, I've, I've read two accounts. One, they said they put it in the pillory. And another one says they hanged it in effigy, just the head of the, okay. of the, of the ox. Pillory and, being the thing that um, people now take pictures of. Exactly. Of with your head in your hands. With your head and your hands in yep. it. Yep. And then the body of the of the ox was given to the slaves of Wilmington. So his intention to go there, goodwill, be sworn in as governor, have his triumphant moment after years and years of being right. in this region and, and serving this, the colony, gets turned around because he dared mention the the Stamp Act. Right. And then a lot of people wonder why was he. Why did he take his inauguration in Wilmington and not here at Brunswick, which was the major port? There was, uh, 
one of the one of the things that I've I've read is that the reason why Tron went to Wilmington was because at first he had the intentions of maybe announcing that Wilmington was going to be the colonial capital. And because of how he was treated and, and the rebellious mood, he said he decided right then and there, there's no way. And as a result, he had the capital placed in New Bern yeah. instead. So after this, this is December, all of this tension carries over into 1766. Correct. And that's, bad. that's where you really see what I think people refer to when they refer to the Stamp Act Rebellion here, that what happens right. here at Brunswick Town. So what happens after he becomes governor and now, you know, you're into a new year, you're one year closer to what will be a rebellion. What happens here at Brunswick? In mid-January, two ships are seized. The Patience and Dobbs, they are seized by uh, Jacob Lobb who is the commander of HMS Viper because they don't have clearance papers. They don't have stamped clearance papers. They come into the river. Now, the patients had a waiver from St. Christopher's, Philadelphia. She had she had uh, waived papers. So that seizure was eh, sort of. Because you got to understand, it's business as usual now in the rest of the colonies. Yeah. It's business as usual pretty much in all of North Carolina, except for the Cape Fear. Yeah. And so when these two ships are seized, and then a third one, the Ruby, gets seized, and then when seven ships try to enter the river and they're turned back because they don't have papers, that really begin that really gets the water boiling. And why don't they have papers? Because they're resisting the Stamp Act? No, because there's no no stamp papers. Oh, that's right. Okay. No stamps were landed. Yeah. None of the colonies allowed the stamps to be landed. So is this the royal authority's way of kind of hitting back at the fact that they kind of impeded? No, it's just the, the Royal Navy, Captain Lobb, was just following his orders. Okay. All right. So he gives the stamp paper, the, 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 the clearance papers that he seized to William Dry, port collector. Here in Brunswick. Here in Brunswick. Now, Dry is by no means a fan of the Stamp Act. Yet, he is a crown official. By being the collector of the port, he is a crown official. He has to abide by the law or he can resign. He's making a killing. Yeah, you know, I mean he's making it face it. He's he's raking in the money um, by being the the port collector because he can take, you know, he's got to take the, the fees, the fines, and any other you know blind bribes, fee, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So he's making he's making quite a bit of money. It's it's a good place. It's a good perch to have here. Good in the perch case, to yeah. have, unless there is an open rebellion about to start, and he's going to have to be forced to choose sides. So. When 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 these three ships are seized, it that's when the realization comes in that Brunswick and the Cape Fear is really the only place in North Carolina that shut down completely, and that does it. Now Dry, because he's he's a crown official, but also against the Stamp Act, he tries to figure out what he can do. 
And so he writes to Attorney General Robert Jones Jr. and tries to get a ruling on, you know, what he can and can't do. And essentially, Jones writes back that if he does not enforce the Stamp Act and follow the law, then he is going to be subject to censure. So, so he's facing resign. Correct. Or, you know, there's really no win, I don't think, there. There's no win for <laughs> there's, him. Yeah. There's no win. I was no. trying to think of a way to describe that as anything, but no. It's the, only thing, the only way he's going to win is that he will be a hero of the people. Well, in, in a coming rebellion, that can be good. Exactly. Or there is, yeah. So he's either got to he's either got to abide by the law, or resign. Mm-hmm. But then, thinking about it, there's a third option that he has. He could instigate. He's in a good position too. He's in a good yeah. He's in a good position. So the easy thing would be to draw up vouchers for these ships and pay a bond. So you can do that, and then. They can, they can be released. But he could also figure that, well, you know, we could just hold on to the papers a little bit longer and see what happens. You know, if you're going to stir a pot to stir, really stir things up, do you stir it clockwise or counterclockwise? Is there, <laughs> is there any way to know? doesn't really matter. No. So essentially what's going to happen is because no admiralty courts are functioning in Brunswick or North Carolina legally, these ships are going to have to be sent to Halifax, Nova Scotia, because that's the closest admiralty court in operation. That's because a, in Canada, they're landing stamps. It's a long sail. <laughs> right. And Dry himself says that it would be very bad and very risky to send those ships that time of year, 500, 5,000, or not 5,000, 500, I think he says 500 miles. It's more than 500 miles yeah. to Nova Scotia. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and then they're going to incur losses and stuff like that. So let's just draw it out, see what happens. So on February 15th, the, the people get their answer from Dry and from Robert Jones that these ships are going to be sent to Halifax. And that, when, when, they, when the people find out that, they're, at that point, all hope is lost of a peaceful settlement. There, there's nothing else that can be ha- that can happen. Because this is carried over. I mean, this this, this stalemate yeah. of nothing happening in this area has been carried over from the year before. From so the year before. they're starting so to months. feel that that yeah. burden of of what this is doing. And on the fifteenth, forty people in Wilmington, forty men in Wilmington, including the mayor, all of the aldermen, eight of the justices of the peace. And then all the freeholders write a letter to Dry telling him they're coming um, and warning them, warning him of, of violence if these ships aren't released. They also send a letter to Governor Tryon. So when nothing happens on February 18th, they form the Sons of Liberty in Wilmington. And this is the leading members of society in the Cape Fear. And depending on whose account you read, it's anywhere from 150 to 1,000. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And basically what they do is they make a solemn vow not to allow the Stamp Act from being enforced. 
So this is their sticking point. The, the Stamp Act is what is doing this. It's, it's not it. other things. It's it's, it's they, this has been Place their it. their issue that they have kind of staked their claim on. One issue. That's it. On February 18th, they, they formed the Sons of Liberty. On the 19th, they march on Brunswick. And again, depending on whose numbers, I go with William Dry's numbers, uh, who he says 800. So you could actually go 500, 800 men. So he's really watching this as like, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. So the people march into, into Brunswick, and it's people from Wilmington, New Hanover, Bladen, and Brunswick. They converge on the governor's house first. Russellboro. Russellboro. Well, at the time, Castle Tryon. Castle Tryon, yeah. Right. And the governor's in there. And, you know, they, they demand, talk to Captain Lobb, and Tryon says he doesn't know where he is. And so the people leave, but they leave an armed guard of about 150 men surrounding Tryon's house for his, quote-unquote, protection. Sure. Now, they go into Brunswick. They can't find Lobb, but they find Dry. And in Dry's words, the people of the country immediately raised a large parcel of men to a quantity of near 800, took me prisoner, and demanded of me the papers of the three sloops, which I told them I could no, by no means deliver. They then immediately entered my house, as many as could get in, and at the same time near 200 surrounded the house. They went in and broke open my desk, and there took out several papers belonging to those vessels, which they now have in their hands. So he has been... Absorbed into this. I mean, he's been watching it from afar, it sounds like. Correct. Now he is a part of it. So they steal the papers. Now, they only get the papers of two ships because, and he's, and, and Dry said he was willing to release the ruby. Well, actually, Lobb said he was willing to release the, the ruby. But, yeah, he's willing, but, no, they just took them. So they go to, they go to uh, from there, they go to uh, the docks and confront Jacob, Captain Lobb. And it's you know Lob says he he concede to to releasing Ruby because she may have been an you know an improper seizure but patience no they were not going to do that and the Dobbs had already been released interesting <laughs> Dry knew this <laughs> but he still watched Some but he people still like to watch Dry Dry had already they'd already brokered that deal to release you know the Dobbs. Well, and also backing down completely right now, probably from a from an authoritarian standpoint, from the royal authority, is giving the colonists a little too much. Exactly. It's, because they'll get, they'll see. They'll want more. Yeah, they'll want more. They'll want more. And once all that happened, that kind of eased things. Now, at the same time, these 150 men that have surrounded the governor's house, over half of them have joined the crowd in Brunswick which has left about 50 or 60 men. And then as the night wears on, they kind of dwindle away. So the governor's not under, quote-unquote, house arrest. He's not being protected anymore. Yeah. So he is able the next day to leave his house and board the HMS Diligence, which is down here now. And the two captains, the governor, and a few other officials meet, and they decide that they have to stay firm. And what ends up happening is the, the people come back on the 20th and because they've got lob, they've got dry to say they're not going to get in the way. They're, they're out of it. 
but they need one more person. They need the comptroller of the colony, William Pennington. And they can't find Pennington. And then they find out Pennington is in Tron's house. Hiding out. Hiding out. So the people start march on Tron's house again. They demand Pennington come out. Pennington comes out, and he's walking away with the crowd when Tron comes out and says, oh, no, no. Pennington, you get back in the house. We still have official business to take care of. So Pennington turns around goes back in the house. And the people are like, well, he's coming with us. He's going to sign an oath not to enforce the Stamp Act. And Tron says, no, he's not. We've still got official business to deal with. And he is not signing anything. So Tryon's getting fed up with... He's fed up. He's, he's been giving them a little latitude. He's been right. trying to help. And, and now they're up. like... No. And essentially what Tryon does is he says, if he leaves, if you come in this house, you know, they threaten to break into the house to get him. And Tryon says, do it. Burn it and be damned. But you're not, he's not signing anything. If he leaves this house then he will no longer be a crown official. So we wouldn't be able to assign that. He'll be able to sign it all he wants to. It won't matter. won't matter. So before Pennington leaves, he resigns. He finishes up whatever business, and he resigns as comptroller of the colony. He walks out of the house. They parade him back into town where he and Dry and Lobb sign oaths not to enforce the Stamp Act. The... The next day, the 21st, the townspeople gather up all the attorneys and everybody else of any authority. They all sign oaths not to uh, enforce the Stamp Act, and off they go. So how does that affect the Cape Fear region then? If, if oh, it crippled. all of these people who are in power are saying we're not going to enforce what is See, the royal law. Yeah. But it's not just that. It's just not the, the – you look at it as – what the colonists have done is, in their minds, what the, what the locals have done in their minds is they've pretty much cut off the heads that can enforce it, except for Tron. So, you know, and, and to the, for the most part, Tron's a figurehead. But at the same time, all law and order has broken down across the board in, in, in this area. Because you think about it, the mayors are involved in this. The aldermen the justice of the peace, the militia. The rebellion goes pretty high. Yeah, but if you look at the people, just those 40 names that are on the list that wrote the letter in February, it's the mayor, it's the alderman. So the mayor and the alderman control the justice of the peace. Sometimes they're the same thing. Like the mayor was also a justice of the peace. Mm-hmm. All right, the justice of the peace had the powers of the sheriffs. The sheriffs had the powers of the constables. Most of these men are also the officers of the militia. So any law enforcement is under basically what yeah. you would say mob rule. Yeah. There well, is no law enforcement. For Tryon, that's got to be a nightmare. A, a, night, a nightmare because he's he, all alone. And you know, the, the, the other thing about this is all right, you, you heard me say if it's not the first armed, successful armed rebellion against British authority in America, it's one of the first. And you think, oh, my God, armed rebellion. You're thinking fires and gunshots and everything else. Not a shot is fired. Mm-hmm. Now, how can this be an armed rebellion? Well, first off, the men are armed. Second off, 
they basically put the governor under house arrest. And you think, well, that's a real big deal. Who made Tryon governor? The king. The king did. Which makes Tryon a direct representative of? The king. The king. And if you bear arms against the governor, you're actually bearing arms against? The king. High treason. They got away with it. Free and clear. Well, the armed part of it almost seems like it was intimidation. You know, nothing, nothing was, no shots were fired. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you have an army, for all intents and purposes, now marching on your representative of the king and holding him in his house, that is. Yeah. Well, give you an idea of the the mindset. All right. Here's, again, William Dry's words. Was an officer to distribute a stamped paper, he would be murdered and his estate destroyed, as the people all here say they are determined to do. And by what I can learn, they are as riotous in the several other provinces on the continent. They have stopped their vessels from coming into any port where the stamps are received and seem resolute in their intentions of opposing the Stamp Act in all its branches. Those are the words of William Dry. Now, granted, this is coming from the man who may very well have been, you know, <laughs> was the instigator. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, was the instigator. But, you know, another, another period quote, it is well worthy of observation that few instances can be produced of such a number of men being together so long and behaving so well. Not the least noise or disturbance, nor any person seen disguised with liquor during the whole time of their stay at Brunswick. Neither was there any injury offered to any person but the whole affair conducted with decency and spirit, worthy the imitation of all the sons of liberty throughout the continent. So it was civilized unrest. It was civilized unrest. Yeah. Right. Well, that's smart. They know yeah. they know what they're doing. They they know that they are committing, as, as you said, high treason. High treason. Yeah. But they know they have numbers, and they know that mm-hmm. Tryon at this point seems a bit powerless. And if you look at... If you, you, know, you remember what I described in Wilmington, what was going on. I mean, just drunken rowdiness. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when William Houston came to town, this was in mid-November before the, um, the stamps were even arrived. He arrives in town as the stamp collector. You know, the man that's going to be in charge of doing the stamps. And as soon as he comes into Wilmington, a drunken crowd gathers him up. And he said, I didn't know I was it. Yeah, he knew. Um, Anyway, they force him to sign an oath not to enforce the Stamp Act, not to allow any stamps, and to resign his position. As soon as he signed everything, oh, the party was on. They took him to every tavern until there was nothing left. And they're carrying him around town from tavern to tavern, house to house. Then they take him to his house. And then when he, they let him down and he opens the door to his house, everybody goes in. And what do they do? They drink everything in his house. And then when there's nothing left to drink, they all go home. It was almost like each step of this, when they did succeed, it was like a celebration. They, they had they had They had trounced royal authority. It, they did. And it was just celebrating mm-hmm. in their own, in the way they did back then. So you can, you can see in many aspects, you can see the correlation between what's happening now and what happened then. Circumstances were kind of set up, you know, back then, all commerce, everything is shut down. Here, all commerce is shut down. Over there because of a law, here because of a pandemic. You see now 
people, even in Wellington, when there is sign of progress, if they feel their message is getting heard, they celebrate. They celebrate. And that's exactly what it sounds like these colonists were doing. Every time they got someone on their side, every time they found support somewhere, mm-hmm. it was a point of celebration. But it was also to a means to an end. They were looking to stop this from being enforced in their area. Correct. And they did. And things got so bad where they realized this is the only place in their minds, this is the only place in North America where commerce, government, religion, everything has ceased. It felt very personal by then, I imagine. It was very personal. It was very personal. So what happens to the Stamp Act? If I'm not mistaken, it gets repealed just a few months later. In March, March 28th, it will be the first act repealed by Parliament. Why? Did they see what was happening and that there was no way to kind of overcome it? Yeah, the, the, the other, the other um, lesson to be learned from the Stamp Act is... Most importantly, what this did, what what the Stamp Act ended up doing was it it forced America to boycott British goods. So if no ships are being allowed in, unless they have stamp papers, there's no commerce. Britain's going to hurt from that. Britain's going to hurt. So as time goes on, yes, you're hearing rumblings from the merchants in Britain. America learned very. Americans learned very early. You want to hurt the the crown, hurt his pocketbook, mm-hmm. and so by doing that, the other thing and 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 what's going to end up happening is the the um, the Stamp Act is going to be the first and only successful economic boycott by America wow. on Britain. It's the only time it's going to work. Oh, trust me. Any time there was a new act or something else instituted between then and and the revolution, the first thing we did was economically boycott. And what did the Brits do? Well, the British are smart. They start looking for secondary markets. We're going to see the same thing happen again a hundred years later when the South secedes. But prior to the, when, when secession begins, the southern states start holding, and, and actually after February, when the Confederate government is formed, cotton shipments are held back from Britain. And basically, it's called King Cotton Diplomacy. The South says, we're not sending you any cotton or trade cotton with you until you recognize the government. Well, guess what? Britain saw this coming a mile away. And so several years before, that's when they they started pumping their efforts into Egypt, Egyptian cotton. So when the South seceded and they tried to hold cotton ransom, Britain went, okay, (laughs) we got Egyptian cotton. Is it as good as the Southern cotton? No, but guess what? It's cotton. And it's not being held for ransom. (laughs) Yeah. So what you're saying is both the colonist and the crown took a lesson from the Stamp Act. Oh, yeah. They fought and they knew how to hurt Britain, and Britain knew how to better protect itself until it came to a breaking point. So, ultimately, what is the importance of that resistance to the Stamp Act here? Because, you know, we're not Yorktown. You know, we don't have that significance of being, you know, a marquee name in the American Revolution. But this seems like a really, really important, almost really important prerequisite moment for the revolution. 
It is, and the Stamp Act as a whole should be studied more because the, the lessons that Britain learned were important lessons. And, and, and basically what the, the lessons did was it just made it harder for the Americans when war did break out. But the result was the same. Over time, the economic sanctions and the, the loss of the markets really did hurt Britain in their whole war effort. For, for the Americans, you know, it's just, it's the first step. It's the first step in independence and the road to independence. It instilled in them a rebellious spirit. It instilled a rebellious spirit. It also showed, you know, at least for the people here in Brunswick Town, that if they did put up a fight, if they did put up that resistance, they could be successful. They could see change. They could see the fruits of their labor. And I imagine that is something that a lot of them, because a lot of them go on to be the Patriots a decade later. So here at Brunswick Town, the residents here really got their first taste of what that coming and eventual revolution was going to be. Yeah. And uh, that's why that's, th- this is important. It is. And, and I'm, trying to, I, I, I'm trying to make the connection between the Wilkes and Liberty 45. That little, that little seditious glass bead and what's going to happen in 1765-66. And further on, was that jewel, that little bitty jewel. That you need a micro, a micro, <laughs> like a, like a, just like a, a really intense, uh, literally it's the third magnifying of the, glass yeah, for the third of the size of a dime. Who had that? How open was the talk? Well, I think it's interesting to think about how when you see that thing in person, it's so tiny. It was it was a very small show of resistance of rebellion. And over time, it just gets louder, gets it bigger. Does. It does. Until it erupts in war. It erupts in war. But yeah, it starts out as that tiny little bead, eventually ends up on spoons, and eventually ends up on mugs, cockades on hats. It ends up on platters and huge serving bowls and banners. You know, it just it grows as time goes on, and it grows very quickly. You know, it could be just this little bitty glimmer of sedition, and then it grows. Just think of that little glass bead as the seed that yep. started what All we have now. Exactly, and a big step forward for that was the the Stamp Act Rebellion. Yep. So, the Stamp Act really is. I mean, you can you can look back at different aspects of, of, of colonial American history where there's some dissent and this and that and the other, but it's really the first time that there's an attempt to unify the colonies into one voice. They got nine of the 13 to send delegates. That's a start. It also unified this region. You know, Brunswick and unified. Wilmington were competing. I mean, they were competing for, for a lot of things. And they'll continue to compete for the next 50 years or 25. My math's horrible now. <laughs> 50 years. But, yes, it, it is a unifying event. Well, 
as I always say, people can come visit Brunswick Town. Right now, at least through a certain, I guess, undetermined time in July, the visitor center is closed, but the grounds are open. Right. So people can still come walk around Brunswick Town. Yeah, yeah. The grounds are open. Uh, the, the rest, more importantly, the restrooms are open. There you go. There we go. Um, it's probably going to be a while before we get the building reopened. Uh, we're mm-hmm. still, we're still trying to, you know, get put back together from Hurricane Florence. Just got the floors put in, and now we've got to unpack everything. And with the way the rules are, we're only allowed a certain number of people, employees in the building at a time, and we can't work in the same rooms together. It's a daunting task to have to unpack hundreds of boxes of stuff. Yes. But people can still visit the grounds. So yes. they can listen to the story, and then they can come out and see Brunswick Town again or for the first time. Yeah. And we're, we're out here. So, you know, all you need to do is... is yeah, if you've got questions and nobody happens to be outside at the time, just call the site and one of us will answer. Yep. And we'll come out and talk to you. Well, Jim, thank you so much for helping me kind of find that connective tissue between the resistance we're seeing today and the resistance that very much sparked uh, what would become revolution in America. So yep. I appreciate it. Thank I you will, so much. And I will, you'll be back soon, I have no well, doubt. That's it for this special episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and our conversation about the Stamp Act Rebellion. Thank you so much for joining me. I want to wish everyone a happy July 4th. Please stay safe out there. And check back in soon for our next episode when we will turn to another chapter in our local history book. Until then, make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or by following me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe and while you're subscribing to things be sure to subscribe to this podcast on apple podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode and while you're there leave us a review which will help more people find cape fear unearthed until next time get out and explore the cape fear region on your own you never know what you might unearth. earth